Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of OYMS Unfiltered. So today we'll be talking about jobs in healthcare and we've picked out a couple of jobs that we find interesting ourselves and we would like to share with you. So my name is Rita and I am a grade 11 student. Adrian, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So hey everyone, my name is Adrian. Uh, I'm a second year student at University of Toronto studying health and disease, psychology and physiology. So Frida, do you want to kick us off with the first job that you've chosen to discuss today? Yeah, so the first, the job that I chose was emergency psychiatry. So it's basically the clinical application of psychiatry in an emergency setting. So patients arrive in an emergency room, and if they're showing symptoms or conditions of a psychiatric emergency, a physician may ask an emergency psychiatrist for a psych evaluation. And if a patient's condition is severe and after they're treated for any life-threatening injuries and conditions, they could be taken to the emergency psych ward for two to three days so the patient can be properly diagnosed and given effective treatment for the future as well. So for this job, it follows like a standard medical school pathway, two years of medical school where you have like the practical where everyone takes their, their preclinical lectures and in the last two years, students are assigned to clinical rotations, and that's where they're working with physicians in at least six different medical specialties, and that also includes psychiatry. And after graduation from med school, doctors are to have a specialization, and if they want to go into psychiatry, they can also choose that through their residency, and they will mostly learn all of their skills to succeed there. And with on-call policies and ongoing updates to emergency psychiatry skills, doctors are expected to complete necessary orientation to maintain these skills even after medical school throughout their careers. So they're updated on whatever skills they need. And for Canada, the best residencies um, are U of T, UBC, and University of Cal Calgary. And so basically a day in the life for an emergency psychiatrist is mainly in the hospital and emergency room, but some circumstances, or in some cases, they may be at home working. And so the average salary in Ontario for an emergency psychiatrist is about $100,000, which is pretty, it's pretty good. And the work hours are similar to any other emergency room physician and nurse, which is eight to 12 hour shifts, which is a lot too. And when coming into a shift, usually starts with a handoff from the previous shift's doctor. So reviewing the necessary information of the patients that they were taking care of and providing and assessing what the necessary care would be. And the regular scope of symptoms and conditions that can be seen during their shifts are suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts, violent behavior, psychosis, substance dependence, abuse, and intoxication, personality disorders, anxiety, and many more. So the common treatments that psychiatrists provide include medications, psychotherapy, and in extreme cases, electroconvulsive therapy, which is kind of like a con controversial form of treatment that is used in only circumstances where a patient is depressed enough to a severe degree that self-harm can't be stopped. For example, um, not being them not wanting to eat, drink, or take medicine. And preliminary research has suggested that this, it, this is an effective form of therapy, but it would take numerous sessions and a, a long time for antidepressant effects to actually take place. 
So usually patients only receive emergency service on a time limited basis. So around 24 hours to 72 hours typically. But after this time frame, physicians and staff like decide on the next location for this patient to receive care. And this is known as disposition. And this is like a very important part of emergency psychiatry. Patients next location could be a psychiatric inpatient facility where they could be sent home or they could be sent home with referrals to other treatment centers, which is considered voluntary hospitalization or in severe cases, an individual is classified as dangerous to themselves or others and voluntary treatment may occur. Interesting. Yeah, so there's many comparisons of psychiatry and psychology and I've researched a little bit into what the differences are between the two. So here's an oversimplified explanation. So psychology and psychiatry are both fields that are trained to treat mental health issues and disorders. However, psychiatry is more of the medical branch and requires psychiatrists to go through the same pathway as any other doctors do to get their medical license. Whereas psychology is a field where there's a specialized degree that you can obtain for it. And usually psychologists have to earn a master's and a doctoral degree as well to complete their postdoctoral fellowships for additional supervised experience before they can obtain their psychology license and treat clients. So the main difference is that psychologists are, um, psychologists are only licensed to provide psychotherapy, which is verbal therapy, while psychiatrists are licensed doctors, meaning that they are able to prescribe medication in addition to psychotherapy as a treatment method. However, it is said that psychologists are now granted permission to prescribe medication with required education and training onwards. So that also another difference is that it takes around 13 years to become a psychiatrist because of how long med school and residency is while psychology only takes around eight to 10 years. And emergency psychiatry is one branch of psychiatry and its main difference is that you don't take in regular patients, you usually refer them to another place or another facility after their stay at the emergency room. Wow, that's a lot of information, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I know we talked about this off camera and it's like, mm-hmm. Frida, you said you were potentially interested in like this being like a career path for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, why does like, like, why does emergency psychiatry like sound interesting to you? And like specifically, like you're talking, it's like more specialized field of psychiatry, Mm -hmm. right? So like why emergency psychiatry over like having more regular patients, right? And then like why that over like psychology or something? Yeah. So like, as Adrian mentioned, you don't really take in regular patients. And for me, I think that's a good thing because you might get too attached and it, it, personal feelings might get into, in the way. And that's a, like a whole field of like medical ethics and law and stuff like that. And also it, you can really see the effects of how you're helping someone immediately. And there's like a lot of different ways that you can help someone. But there's also a lot of cons that I've realized when researching. So you may encounter a lot of like dangerous people and like your safety may be compromised sometimes, but as a doctor, it's your first priority to also keep your patient safe. So there's like a lot of hard decisions to make there. And also as an emergency room doctor, you're there. And if like, 
the hospital is like short staffed, if there's not enough doctors, you're also going to have to take take part in those um, protocols and procedures if there aren't enough doctors. So you're you're going to have to still know all of those things from med school, and that's a lot to remember. And it's kind of like emergency rooms are brutal. There's like a lot of things going on and there's like a lot of cases that like may happen that you might not see anywhere else. And it's like kind of dealing with like the loss of like being able to save someone and seeing them in somewhere else, I guess, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. But yeah, it's like the emergency room is always gonna be a place that's hard to deal with but it's also fast paced, which is something that I also like, but that's just like my own perspective. So those are just some things to keep in mind. That's fair. Do you think that like, you know, you said doing research opened you up to a lot of these cons. Do you still think this is something you're really interested in after? Um, to be honest, not anymore. <laughs> like I realized that like you're gonna have to still remember a lot of things that like that are like regular for med school, like to be a regular doctor, but also there's like a lot of medical law stuff and medical ethics stuff you're gonna have to go through as well as a lot of other training. And it might be a lot, it like might take a while. So we'll see. But definitely, it's like a it's a really cool career choice. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I also like the way I got introduced into medicine was like, ooh, clinical psychology sounds cool, and then like psychiatry was this is like a different specialization, right? And that's when I was like, oh, so this is medical school. Um, and uh, I do find it interesting because I'm also like, as we'll see with the example, I'm gonna segue into here. I am a fan of like fast paced and I think that's really cool that there's a, a branch of psychiatry that's very focused on that. Um, yeah, so the first uh, job I will bring in today is um, being a trauma slash acute care surgeon. Um, it has actually a lot of resemblances with psychiatry, especially when it comes to the cons and also the pros, right? It's an emergency room job, so it's fast paced. A lot of people are coming and going. Um, which can be really exciting, but also lead to a lot of like, burnout and stress. So specifically in Canada, um, we don't have many really cool undergraduate medical school integrated programs. So you're kind of stuck doing your four regular years of undergrad and then going into medical school. Obviously, if you have to do a master's, a PhD in between, whatever, but the main goal is to get to medical school. Um, you do around five years of general surgery residency. So at first you're just training to become a surgeon and then you do one to two years of additional trauma and acute care fellowship where you really learn how to deal with a surgery in these high pressure situations and how that differs from a general surgery uh, training. This additional like one to two years is quite common. Uh, if you look at other specializations in surgery, um, some, uh, some types of surgery don't make you do the five years of general surgery and they just immediately put you into a specialized residency programs. Uh, but trauma and acute care definitely isn't the only surgical specialization that does five years and then does a fellowship on top of that. 
So the way someone described general surgery in uh, an article I read was uh, general surgery on steroids. So the idea is that when a patient comes in and you know they're suffering from a form of trauma, so we can think things like cuts and burns and penetrative wounds, right? Um, the goal of a trauma surgeon is really to stabilize the patient. So the goal here isn't really to fix everything that's wrong. Um, they're not trying to um, fix broken bones and all these stuff. The goal is really to take care of the patient to the point where they can be handed off to the appropriate teams, right? There are emergency situations where these, this like isn't fully possible without the help of other specializations immediately. For example, I was reading an article posted by the Ottawa Hospital actually, where um, someone came in and uh, they had like their aorta was torn, which is like the largest, most important artery in your body. Um, and they mentioned specifically in the article, in the article that the cardiac, chief cardiac surgeon came in, which is a rare thing to see in the trauma bay. Um, just because that's how severe the situation was. So usually there is like handoffs to other departments, but usually you're not actually working side by side with them that much. Um, trauma surgeons, uh, from the information I can gather, they usually work 12 to 24 hour shifts. That would be like including on call. So most likely you do a 12 hour shift and another 12 or so hours being on call. Um, just because you always have to have one on hand, right? You, you need to have, they're the highest level of like emergency response you can have in a hospital. Um, so you definitely need to have them uh, by your side. Um, so some pros, very similar to psychiatry is it's really fast paced. And this is what I think excites me about trauma surgery. It's that it'll always be different um, and that you're working also with a team right? There's no way you can do this on your own. You're working with a team of anesthesiologists and different nurses and doctors to make sure that you guys can do whatever you can. So it's very collaborative, very fast paced. Uh, the cons that come with that uh, are there's a lot of burnout, right? You don't get to sort of like take long-term care of a patient. You sort of see a patient, uh, you're there for a brief moment and uh, yes, you can really change their lives, but you're not following them through usually all the way throughout like rehabilitation and all this, this type of deal, the way like a family doctor would or uh, um, someone who does like physiotherapy and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's my little spiel on uh, what trauma and acute care looks like. Very cool, very similar to emergency psychiatry. Not surprised, yeah. but it's still very cool to see those connections in a hospital, honestly. So yeah. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm surprised that we have such a uh, similar interest in, uh, yeah. in, uh, in medicine and uh, related jobs, I suppose. Yeah. So we can move on to my second one, which mm -hmm. is forensic science or just forensics. So it's basically like the application of science to the judicial system. <laughs> Analyze, it's basically just analyzation and interpretation of evidence, which also plays a huge role in trials and court hearings. So it's used to enforce law and government regulations to resolve disputes and establish and assess responsibility and improve public safety. So due to this, it's important for, it's also important for lawyers, judges, enforcement officials, and other people in, 
that are involved in law to know the capabilities and limits of forensics to do their job better. So education pathways, there's many post-secondary institutions that have forensic-based programs with their diploma. So for this job, a bachelor's degree in forensics is the minimum requirement, but in more advanced positions, some may require masters or doctorates. And there are also many fields to specialize in that are very unique and interesting. There's toxicology, there's also trace evidence analysis, there's serology, which is the study of biological fluids such as blood. And there's also odontology, which is the study of teeth. There's also digital forensics, biometrics, and there's also a little bit of business involved. So for added advantage, gaining professional certification would also boost your profile. And it's not required, but there's so many certifications that you can get that, you, that would boost your profile. So there is certification such as crime scene reconstruction, death investigation, latent prints, hairs and fibers, forensic photography, drug analysis, drug chemistry, and fire diverse analysis. So every single post-secondary institution in Canada provides forensic science, but U of T, Simon Fraser, University, Queens, and UBC are some of the best ones. For a day in the life, you could be working in many settings, such as a lab, a courthouse, a crime scene analyzing firsthand, and the working hours are similar to a typical nine to five jobs. So this, there's so many paths that you could go down, even if you don't like the other, because every single pathway is really important for the whole system and the whole job to actually come in place. And yeah, so, the pros and cons. So with your degree, like as I mentioned, there are so many different specializations you could go to. So even if you don't like looking at blood, that's no problem because you can also just look at fingerprints. You can analyze fingerprints, you can analyze other evidence. And it's also like a crossover between medicine, crime and law, which is really interesting. So for all the crime lovers out there, there's also that potential to also be in medicine, but there's also a lot of cons because you, you always have to be on your feet. You can't like take a break because there might be another um, piece of evidence that needs to be analyzed. And sometimes there's a time restraint on how long you can take that evidence or how long you can use it, or like it might expire or it might go bad. As well as this job doesn't really have patience you're just doing cases. So that might be the biggest difference between forensic science and being a doctor. So those are some of the things that I found. That's very cool. I've, yeah. I've always like been a little interested in like crime. I know Samira loves watching, like listening. Yeah. She always brings up like crime podcasts uh, and shows. What, what type of forensics if you were to do like you were saying there's so many different specializations mm -hmm. would you be like more like a frontline person or would you want to do like lab work or uh, what type of stuff would you like to do if you were into forensics um, I feel like I watched this like show that might not be like the best way to <laughs> get your information but it was talking about how when you're on scene you have to kind of play 
the victim and see how they were injured and how they were like maybe what happened and you have to have like a whole playthrough and that's how you can like gather more evidence that's how you can actually assess what evidence is going to be effective and what isn't because there's so many things that could you could bring into court but it might not be as effective it might not make the jury be like oh this person is definitely guilty or this person is definitely not guilty so mm-hmm. there's I, I really like that crossover of law in there too because law is another job to help people essentially it's a, it's a great crossover between medicine crime and the law yeah no that's very cool I also definitely think I would like to be on the front lines I think it's just exciting sorry to anyone uh, any prospective uh, <laughs> supervisors is trying to get me to do lab work but I don't think that's it's yeah. that fun uh, I don't love uh, being in the lab or just uh, doing a dry lab work as they say mm-hmm. I think it's really cool to be out and about to see stuff but yeah I can imagine there's like a huge time crunch when it comes to yeah. Um, trying to collect some evidence, making sure that things are accurate and don't get like mislabeled and stuff like that. There's also a really cool subsection of forensics is forensic accounting, which is you basically track like financial records and money laundering and stuff like that, which is also another crossover of business. It's just like a bunch of crossovers and I find it really cool because I'm also like interested in business and it's a really cool way that you can use science and business to kind of make a court case more effective and stuff wow that sounds super like fbi level yeah i was like that's definitely fbi level (laughs) stuff you're like the person in the chair yeah it's really cool yeah i guess you could come from like all these different fields right like you could be someone who like got trained in like finance and then you could be like well i want to use these skills and apply them to this field of like forensics it's like mm-hmm. huh wow that's exciting I could never do that because math <laughs> and numbers my brain does not like those but that is very cool mm-hmm. speaking of like very interdisciplinary fields um my next one is uh I'm going to talk about uh what it's like to like be a bioethicist so I think I always knew that this job probably sort of existed but um this semester, I had to take a bioethics course uh, for medicine, and I thought it was very exciting. Um, anyone at U of T, if you're listening, uh, PHL 281, it was, a, it was a fun course. It's very science-y, so it's not that philosophical, but it, it's cool. Um, and so you can come from multiple backgrounds, right? Uh, they're not super picky. Um, one thing, a term that I learned is that they would like you, it's probably very beneficial for you to have a terminal degree in your field. So what this means is that like, if you're in law, you should probably have a Juris Doctor. If you're doing science, you should probably have a medical degree or a PhD. Um, I think frequently it's seen that masters are like, can be sufficient, but as the field grows and gets more competitive, a PhD is probably uh, what you're gonna need to start working as a bioethicist. Um, and so it's very integrative and it's sort of like a large spectrum and it sort of also will shift over into like law um but to focus more on the bioethics options um we have some of the big ones are clinical ethics consultation organizational ethics uh and research ethics 
So clinical ethics consultation, what does it look like? It's when you are usually working in a hospital or at a clinical practice, and your job is really to be on the floor and to be on standby for when um, hospital workers or patients have ethics-related questions. So some really common ones that we see nowadays is when it comes to like deciding if a patient has the right to refuse a certain treatment or especially um, end-of-life treatment, right? There's often these sort of issues between uh, advanced directives or advanced wishes the patients might have made and the wishes of the family and uh, what the hospital staff uh, deems to be like acceptable or feasible treatment, right? So this is where uh, clinical ethics Ethic, ethicists will come in and uh, sort of shine light on what is and isn't possible. Uh, something to make a distinction of is that they do not provide legal advice, right? So there's this line where clinical ethic, ethicists will be operating uh, and hospitals do have legal departments and they sort of work together to determine what is best for the patient and what like precedents have been already set legally that they can uh, base their opinions off of. Yeah, looking at organizational ethics, this is something that I did not know existed, but it's sort of looking at policies and initiatives for organizations. So it's like, is this new uh, initiative ethical? Like what policies do we need to implement, to implement to create an environment that is like better for everyone, right? And to, that's more favorable. And lastly, we have research ethics. So there's two aspects to this. You can be doing research in uh, ethics or bioethics, right? So you can just be conducting research. You can also be sitting on a research ethics board, which is something I've heard about a lot. Most students in first year sciences will learn that, you know, if you ever want to do a study, it always has to be approved by an ethics board, whether that's your institution or hospital or local government. Uh, so there are people who sit on that and they're ethicists. So there you go. One thing I find very cool about uh, being a bioethicist is that like in medicine, where you work can be very broad, right? So you can work at a hospital to see patients. You can work in a very academic setting. You can teach. Um, you can also work for private companies, right? You can have a private consultation practice. Um, you can also work for like pharmaceutical companies, law companies, all these different places, which I find is uh, exciting. A day in the life. I found it very challenging to find specific hours for uh, this field, um, but I'm guessing that if you're working at the hospital, you're probably working sort of like the same shifts that probably nurses and doctors are working, sort of 12 hour shifts and maybe being on call just because probably they need to have someone on hand. But also I wouldn't be surprised if they work less hours than like surgical specialties would, maybe around the same that nurses work, something like that. Cool. Just a question. Are mm -hmm. they allowed to say like there's not enough doctors? Are they allowed to like operate in situations or does it depend on whether or not they have a medical degree? I'm not sure. My guess is that if you have a medical degree and it's like a huge emergency mm -hmm. and like for some reason the hospital is super short staffed, they would have some skills that could come in handy, but I think primarily they're not, uh, they're not doing so much like patient, direct patient intervention, right? They're not like treating mm -hmm. patients. They're not like hands-on with that sort of thing. 
through emotional looking at um, decision-making processes and stuff like that. Um, also, because they come from a variety of backgrounds, I'm sort of guessing that, you know, if you're looking at PhD people or stuff like that, then they're definitely not allowed to, uh, yeah. to intervene with patient care. Um, Very cool aspect of yeah. medicine. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a field that I would want to go into, um, but it, I have started thinking about it now that I've taken this course. It's been an interesting sort of, it seems very problem solving oriented, uh, very much so like challenging like norms and figuring out what is essentially the most correct option, right? Which can sometimes be really confusing. Uh, so I think it's something that people should look into because I haven't really heard it discussed. Uh, on many other platforms. So yeah. Very cool. Okay, so we can move on to our last job, which is biomedical engineering. So it's basically engineering, the engineering application of devices and equipment in a clinical and medical setting. So basically what they do is design, study, develop, and evaluate biological and medical system and products to improve the medical field. So some of the things that this includes are like artificial organs, medical instruments, and information systems. And they work closely with like life scientists and chemists and also other medical professionals so that they can gain insight for the development of their products. So for this job, you only require a bachelor's degree in engineering. So like any, including chemical, electrical, or mechanical engineering but you also have to major or specialize in biomedical engineering if you want to go into the industry. However, for more research and developmental focus, physicians, grad school is required for that. So altogether, it's around six to seven years. And some of the best programs in Canada are U of T, obviously. I would, I would just like to say that I'm I'm happy that U of T, I didn't look at all the best schools for my stuff, but I'm so like, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the word is, but not actually proud, but like bragging, <laughs> bragging rights that U of T is like up there. Yeah. yeah. Um, U of T is, it's like more like research-based rather than like practicing. I think that's <laughs> what I've heard. Yeah. I mean, there's like, like as an undergraduate student, you do a lot of, you know, you just have like regular university life, mm -hmm. but yeah, a lot of the staff, uh, there's a lot of research that comes out of U of T. That's a lot of staff do a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. So the best programs in Canada include U of T, University of Waterloo, Western, Queens, and McGill. So usually a day in the life of this job is they work mainly in offices, labs, workshops, manufacturing labs, and also clinics and hospitals. So it's a pretty wide range of where they work. So the average salary in Ontario is around $90,000 and the work hours are similar to a nine to five job. And it's actually very flexible, especially if you're doing research. So all you do is develop models, hardware, software products, equipment or theories even and systems. And those are just some of the things that you would see. And they're often conducting research and testing the stuff that they're doing so that they know that it works and it's going to be effective in where they're going to use it. And it's another field that has a lot of specializations. So there's like bioinformations, bioinstrumentation, biomaterials, biomechanics, bio nanoengineering. 
cellular and tissue engineering, clinical engineering. And that's only like half of the lists. I'm not going to read them all out. <laughs> that's a lot, but it's a lot of really cool stuff because it honestly, it's a lot of engineering based stuff. There's like system design engineering, there's bioengineering and chemical engineering. So that like this whole project will actually run effectively. And so some of the pros are that you do research instead of treating patients. Treating patients is like a really cool part, but also seeing the back end of that before actually having patients and being able to have materials, have the equipment and all the things necessary to be able to treat them is also a really cool like career to be in. But also you can work with medical professionals. You can also gain insight on what they're doing, even if you're like a biomedical engineer. So you're basically like helping people's lives medically in a different way. Additionally, it's much shorter education. Instead of going through medical school, you just have to have um, an engineering degree, which is only around like four years. But if you wanna go into deep detail, it's like six to eight years, which is so much shorter than medical school. And you probably don't have to have that competitiveness that medical school has. And I would say engineering sounds crazy wild. Um, it sounds like a rough world. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about engineering and undergrad and also into like the graduate studies. Mm -hmm. So graduate studies is actually pretty competitive as well. And like academia in general and research, it's pretty competitive. It's like similar to medical school, but not much of like the hands-on, but more of just a lot of stuff going on. But some of the cons for this is that since you're working on one project at a time, it's pretty easy to burn out. And especially if you're not seeing results, especially since it's such a long process of developing a project because you probably need like bioethicists to be able to help you to know if your research is okay or not. And if you're, like processes are okay. And you're probably gonna have to consult a lot of other medical professionals, a lot of other engineers, and also just a whole bunch of stuff is going on and it might be repetitive. So if that's not really your thing, if, like I know me and Adrian both mentioned that we really like fast paced stuff, but this is also a job that requires a lot of patience because engineering requires a lot of patience. And especially since you're working to develop a product or a project that is going to be used in such like a, in a medical way, you don't want any errors to take part. So it has to be ensured that it's competent. So it's just gonna be a lot of research, testing, quality analysis, so a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I can um, also imagine that like, you're you work really long like you have a team that's working for a really long time yeah. on a product and it just doesn't get approved right or like something mm -hmm. like the trials don't go well and uh it's like cutthroat to like get your thing your like if it's a drug or like I had a we had a lecture once in a guest lecture and this guy is like working on like developing he does research works on developing treatments um 
and I think it was uh, Alzheimer's. And it's like the duration you have to go through to do to like yeah. provide good results in theory, and then on like mice, and then on like fish, and then like you have to some like it's such a long process to get yeah. it approved. Um, for human use right it's like I can imagine people work on these projects for forever and they just don't work out and like nothing is guaranteed it's like a really rocky pathway like Mm -hmm. you never know like oh your child's could go wrong so you have to go back and redo something or if your child goes right you also might not know where to go so it's just the whole gist of everything there's also like a businessy side of it where it's like you develop a product and you put it on the market and it's something that I heard from like a lecture and it was a really cool aspect so it like all the jobs that we were talking about today like really kind of tied in a bunch of other fields together which is really cool and yeah yeah that's awesome so I think you were saying you're thinking about maybe going to uh, into engineering for university right Mm-hmm. Yeah. big brain me no thank you um <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that's who's awesome. already at u of t okay yeah. not I'm, I'm just doing the the meager sciences here i'm not doing oh, some yeah. wild <laughs> engineers here are crazy by the way for anyone out there i'm not sure if this happens at all universities but i have so much respect for engineering kids here at u of t because they don't get reading week so we get oh, really? two reading weeks yeah we get two reading weeks every year like March break and then like one close close to like November and engineering students don't get that. They also, from my understanding, have to take six courses a semester while uh, most other programs do five. Five is sort of like five credits is usually considered like a normal course load. You can obviously do less or request to do more, but engineering students, their baseline is six courses a semester and no reading week, so. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> U of T is going to be at the bottom of my list. Oh, no. like, oh no. Um, yeah. You know, on the bright side, uh, U of T says engineering frosh is really cool. It's like a cult, I think. A cult. I think it's a cult. Um, <laughs> a cult. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very tough program and it's like really mm-hmm. for people who work hard, but I'm sure that a lot of people still really enjoy it, which is mm-hmm. like important. It does sound really exciting though. Um, and it, I think like you mentioned, it's really cool that it's so interdisciplinary, right? Like I'm sure there's mm-hmm. people designing like the alloys and the materials for these like yeah. prosthetics. Uh, and then people uh, working on like software if there's like any moving components or stuff like this, um, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. So my last, uh, my last job for today is uh, it's very broad and I will keep it uh, a little bit short and sweet. Uh, so for anyone listening who's gone this far, thank you. Um, so today we're talking, uh, my last topic will be about becoming a researcher. So very often when I see these posts on people's uh, Instagrams, I think even OIMS's Instagram, it's like alternative pathways for students studying sciences because as a student in pre-med, it's very often that uh, the main focus is only ever on medical school. And a lot of people decide in undergrad that it's no longer their goal and that's not what they want to do. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do with science. So today I'll be talking about how to do research, how to become someone who sort of spends a lot of their time doing researching. Uh, the very cool thing is that you can essentially come from any background, right? Research exists in every field. 
you can look at history, like um, history, languages, any of the sciences, they all have research components. And so sort of to get into research, usually what you end up doing is like finding an area of interest, establishing yourself in that area, whether you become a professor or like a, a PhD student, a graduate student, and then you just decide that you're gonna commit some of your time to learning more and you attempt to get funding. This is the hardest part I've heard. Uh, and that is like writing uh, applications to like a huge variety of grants uh, by the governments, by uh, institutions and hospital systems and trying to get funding for your research ideas. Um, I have heard that there are some PhDs or graduate programs that will sort of put you directly onto the research path, right? I can think about areas like psychology where they have each, uh, certain degrees that put you directly into like the clinical psychology pathways. Well, other ones will sort of place you more directly into research uh, of psychology. Um, a thing I want to highlight for kids, uh, well, students like ourselves, is that we ourselves can run these research projects, which I think is really, really cool. And I highly encourage to anyone out there. So once you're in university and you start looking, you will see that institutions uh, will provide funding to undergraduate students to run their own research projects. Usually uh, you will require a supervisor. Um, usually it'll be like a faculty member or a faculty member from some sort of institution, um, but there are grant programs. And I think that's really awesome. Like telling a first and second year undergraduate student like, hey, do you have something that excites you? Yeah, we will give you the money, spend your summer writing a paper or like doing actual research. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't come up with any ideas of what I would like to, <laughs> to research. So I don't know what I would, I would do. Um, but if you're someone who has an idea or an era, area that you really want to learn more about, go for it. Uh, one of the things I will shout out is definitely go to your, your university, Google like summer research student grant, whatever. Uh, also, there's one called NSERC and it's funded by, that's a government of Canada one. And they will fund you like almost like a summer minimum wage salaries worth of money to do your own research. You have to write a proposal and all these things. But I think it's awesome that they fund, they fund us uh, to do what we like. And so go out there if you have an idea and uh, don't hold yourself back. Yeah. Definitely really cool. For high school students, there's a bunch of um, research groups in universities that definitely are looking for high school students to take part. So if you're interested in that, and you can also gain insight on how these kinds of research work. You can definitely go check out like your local university's website and see if there's any postings there. Yeah, I would also say, um, I don't know if this is a thing in Ottawa, but as a university student looking for summer jobs at hospitals, I noticed that I believe Mount Sinai or Sick Kids in Toronto, uh, they accept high school co-op students. So if you're taking co-op in high school, um, see if your local hospital or uh, a local clinic accepts co-op students, because that's a, a really early way to sort of peek into the world of research and the world of medicine in general and all these other like healthcare related jobs. So um, 
yeah, sort of like always explore your options and see what's out there if you're excited or interested in something before we conclude. Frida, today, what do you think has is your favorite uh, topic that we've covered today? Um, honestly, I think learning about bioethicists was pretty cool. It was never, it was like a field that I've never heard of before, but like I've definitely heard of like relating to what it does, but never mm-hmm. like exactly the word for like the job, you know? So it was really cool. Yeah, I would definitely say biomedical engineering. I don't think I could like do it, but it fascinates me so much, right? Like there's so many different aspects of trying to help people using essentially modern technology, right? To improve their lives. And I don't know why this one idea keeps coming up, but it's the idea that like, when we like put an implant in someone, like their body's immune system will like start to like clog it up and like project Mm -hmm. it. And we have to put like coatings on it so that like bacteria doesn't attack it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like all these little details I find so fascinating. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to come up with a device or something like that and see it be super successful and help people. Like that just sounds incredible to me. Um, And in the future, I hope I get to work with one of those like teams that's like developing a product. And I hope I can give valuable input and see it uh, come through. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode of OIMS Unfiltered. Uh, We hope you had a great time and learned something new about what, what jobs are out there in the world of healthcare, both in the field of medicine specifically, but also other healthcare related jobs. Um, be sure to share this episode with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts at OIMS Unfiltered. Uh, feel free to follow us at, on Instagram at Ontario Youth Med Society if you haven't already. We host events, create blog posts, and we do so much more. Uh, have a great day, and we will see you on the next one.